and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We have a lot of great articles for you today. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Wasper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. This article comes to us from atlasobscura.com. It's titled Chernobyl's Strange Black Fungi Have a Superpower, (laughs) which is very topical for sure. Yeah, it's ominous. Yeah, and ominous. So on Thursday, February 24th of this year, Russian troops descended on the Chernobyl exclusion zone in northern Ukraine. The defunct power plant, still undergoing cleanup and decommissioning, was taken over by the invaders and the employees held hostage. The most radioactive areas are contained within a stadium-sized steel sarcophagus. However, the war could still lead to leaks, new plumes of radioactive dust, or worse. In fact, Ukrainian officials report that radiation levels increased directly following the invasion, and the IAEA is investigating whether Russian soldiers experienced radiation poisoning during their occupation. Great. That's that's just what you want is to just, you know, break open the sarcophagus. (laughs) Yeah. Never a good thing. I very tangentially, I heard from, you know, like OS intelligence, open source intelligence rumors that some uh, Russian soldiers had dug trenches into the dirt of the Red Forest, which uh, was not red before Chernobyl happened. So they were exposed to a lot of radiation poisoning, if that is true. Did they just not know? I mean, who doesn't know the name Chernobyl? Maybe they took all the signs down or something. I mean, that's just insane. I don't know why you would go in there. It's the forest around it, but Mm -hmm. I guess if you don't know your history, you don't realize that those trees are not supposed to be red or their leaves or what have you. So. Over the years, wildlife has adapted to life in the exclusion zone, the area around the plant where access to visitors is heavily restricted. It is one of the few places on the planet where researchers can study the effects of radiation on nature, and it has yielded many discoveries, including revelations about a particularly extraordinary kind of fungus. Five years after the disaster in 1991, remotely piloted robots discovered a jet black fungus growing on the inside of the reactors. Mm. Intrigued, a team of microbiologists from the Kiev Institute of Microbiology and Virology began visiting the area regularly. Across dozens of visits in the 1990s, Tatiana Tugai and a team led by Nelly Zhdanova found more than 200 fungal species at the site, including jet black fungi with melanin, a pigment that, among other things, influences the color of human and animal hair, skin, and eyes, and can protect against ultraviolet light. Two Guys team hypothesized that the melanized fungi they found might be growing successfully because of the way melanin interacts with radiation. Their research confirmed the theory and found that ionizing radiation altered the structure of melatonin molecules in a way that encouraged those fungi to grow faster than identical samples that were not exposed to radiation. Hmm. And the closer the fungi were to the source of radiation, the more melanin they expressed. In short, the black fungi were not only growing in spite of radiation, they were changing and growing because of it. Right. Which sounds, you know, like the beginning of every DC Marvel villain you've ever heard of, but yeah. (laughs) So does this mean that, like, straight up melanin 
theoretically protects to some degree against radiation. Does that mean people with darker skin are going to do better in the nuclear fallout of war? I mean, like... Yeah, I have no idea. Because, I mean, it says that it was expressed more in the fungi, which, you know, you could say, okay, well, that just means if we get radiated, everybody's going to get darker because the melanin gets expressed. Right, we'll all have a tan, is what you're saying. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, Would not recommend field testing in Chernobyl, that's for sure. No, (laughs) no. Additional research by Tugai Zdanova and John Dyden of Rutgers University found that fungal bodies containing melanin were actually drawn to radiation. The implications of this research are potentially cosmic. In 2016, SpaceX and NASA sent melanized fungi into space to see if it could mitigate radiation there. Per a study published in BioArchive in 2020 that is currently undergoing peer review, the fungi could cut radiation levels in space by about 2%, which could potentially negate the annual dose equivalent of the radiation environment on the surface of Mars. Further research led by Datakova has proposed that the unique relationship between fungi, melanin, and radiation could provide new insights into ways to reduce radiation and generate energy in a warming climate. And, of course, it could help in the case of another nuclear disaster. While Turok notes that radiation cannot be completely bioremediated or removed from the environment by biological action, fungi can indeed help immobilize some of it. Yeah, see, all of this just confirms for me this idea that, like, we're looking for other habitable planets and Goldilocks planets. There's no such thing. There's Goldilocks for us. But things can live. You know, something else might look at our planet and be like, oh, man, that's way too much oxygen. We totally die. Like, I I feel like life can manage anywhere. You just got to give it a chance. Yeah. And, you know, it really makes you think, too, if we nuke ourselves off the planet, planet's going to be fine. The fungi is going to take over for a while, you know? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Life will persist, just not us. We'll be done. (laughs) Exactly. Well, hopefully we can find a future of symbiosis. Yeah, I mean, if we get, like, mushroom suits that can protect us, or, like, we line the entire inside of our space stations with the black fungus to protect us, that's cool. You know, I'm all about working with our black fungus overlords. Yeah. (laughs) Next link. Next link. All right, well, we are definitely on a theme so far because the CBC has an uplifting little article for us about nuclear Armageddon. Ah. Yeah, it's called Bunker Makers Say Business is Booming. Sweet. And, you know, we jump right into it with a quote from Charles Hardman, who is the director of a bespoke bunker and basement design company in the UK. He said, quote, From the first day that it kicked off in Ukraine, my phones were ringing. Matthew Saran, whose Paris-based company Artemis Protection is only a year old, said he has received more than 900 requests for quotes and designs since the war began five weeks ago. Wow. Meanwhile, Google data shows searches for bunker have spiked to levels that haven't been seen since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, and searches for nuclear are at their highest since the 2011 Fukushima disaster. And one of the surprising, but I guess not so surprising aspects of these manufactured bunkers is how fancy they are. You hear the word bunker and you imagine a dark hole in the ground with metal walls, but these are more like entire underground houses. They've got photos of them and they look nice. You know, there's no windows, but other than that, they're very well appointed. Mm -hmm. The cheapest ones start at $200,000 and many run into the millions. One of Hardman's floor plans is 4,300 square feet. And of course, understanding who's buying these things, It is described as room enough for the family and for the staff that run the house. (laughs) And it's very kind of you to want to save them, I suppose. Yeah. But, of course, a lot of that money goes toward necessities like filtration systems, generators, and several meters of concrete between you and the outside world. 
Simply put, Hardman says, they're not cheap to build, and if anyone says it is, then they're lying. Hmm. So some customers choose instead to buy space in decommissioned military bunkers that already exist, but these two are priced for what the market will demand, and the market is currently demanding. In 2014, a 15-story condo built inside a former missile silo in Kansas was able to sell out its 75 units for $1.9 million and up. Wow. And a company called Vivos Survival Shelters has recently started selling space in a former East German bunker for $2.7 million per tunnel, even though their executive director, Dante Vecino, said they're still working on making it habitable. It's just oh. a tunnel. Like, well, sign me up. <laughs> I know, right? Vivos does offer something for the more price-conscious consumer. They run a facility in South Dakota called X-Point that's really more for above-ground preppers who expect society to collapse rather than the entire ecosystem. But houses at X-Point can include an underground bunker if you want for a mere $145,000 extra. Mm. Unfortunately, the one thing you will not find in all of the marketing materials is why governments around the world abandoned these bunker facilities in the first place. It wasn't because the Cold War ended. The answer is that they simply don't work. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> Bunkers were originally conceived during the aerial bombardments of World War I and World War II, and they do work great as a temporary shelter from overhead artillery. Even when the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima in 1945, the belief was that they could still hold up. But in 1954, the world saw the first public detonation of a hydrogen bomb, which is about a thousand times more devastating than the weapon that took out two entire cities in Japan. And according to Emily Glass, a British archaeologist and expert in Cold War bunkers, that was the moment that officials realized that bunkers were pointless. Even if you fortify them, build them deeper, do what you have to do to survive the initial blast, the post-blast radiation would be so widespread and long-lasting that everyone would have to stay underground for months, if not years, and that simply isn't realistic from a food, water, and air supply standpoint. And that's exactly what you're talking about in Chernobyl there. I mean, it's been 30 years now. Yeah. Imagine if you had managed to somehow be at Chernobyl, you saw the thing coming, you get down into your bunker below the power station, you're still down there. You can't mm -hmm. come out. Now, that's not to say that bunkers are pointless everywhere. Countries like Albania, for example, are pretty keenly aware of the possibility of invading forces and the overhead shelling that is still a big part of most land wars. So for them, bunkers may make more sense, and their government does indeed maintain a network of bunkers. Switzerland requires private home builders to include air raid shelters in their designs. And huh. Sweden's Civil Defense Department maintains a network of more than 65,000 public fallout shelters. The key, of course, is that all of these are meant for temporary shelter during an active war scenario and not protection from a full-on nuclear attack. If that happens, simply put, we're all dead and no fancy prepper house is going to save you. But, I, you know, who am I to crush people's prepper dreams? Like, if you have an extra $3 million to spend on a tunnel underground and that's what you want to do, okay. Yeah. They talk about people sort of using these things in the off-season, I guess you would call it. Like, it's sort of a playhouse, a little extra... Maybe a conversation piece? I don't know, but... <laughs> yeah, just a nice little vortex for all of our modern-day anxieties and fears. Or you could just hide from door-to-door -door salesmen, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> they can't find the door. They can't try to sell you anything. Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from scientificamerican.com. It's titled, Researchers Made a New Message for Extraterrestrials. 
what was the old message? <laughs> yeah. So about 50 years ago, there was actually an original message that we were planning to use to send out to aliens. And I believe we were actually just broadcasting it. So oh, okay. Uh, upon discovering the existence of intelligent life beyond Earth, the first question we're most likely to ask is, how can we communicate? As we approach the 50th anniversary of the 1974 Arecibo message, humanity's first attempt to send out a missive capable of being understood by extraterrestrial intelligence, the question feels more urgent than ever. Advances in remote sensing technologies have revealed that the vast majority of stars in our galaxy host planets and that many of these exoplanets appear capable of hosting liquid water on their surface, a prerequisite for life as we know it. In early March, an international team of researchers led by Jonathan Jiang of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory posted a paper on the preprint server Archive that detailed a new design for a message intended for extraterrestrial recipients. The 13-page epistle, referred to as the Beacon in the Galaxy, is meant to be a basic introduction to mathematics, chemistry, and biology that draws heavily on the design of the Arecibo message and other past attempts at contacting extraterrestrials. The researchers include a detailed plan for the best time of year to broadcast the message and propose a dense ring of stars near the center of our galaxy as a promising destination. Hmm. Importantly, the transmission also features a freshly designed return address that will help any alien listeners pinpoint our location in the galaxy so they can hopefully kick off an interstellar communication. Or nuke us. Exactly, like, yeah. You know, <laughs> tell seems... the armies where to go. You know, like yeah. this is very basic Fermi paradox stuff. Uh, yeah. <laughs> which, if you're not familiar, is a paradox explaining why no aliens have reached us yet or why we haven't seen any. And there's multiple answers, but one of which is that the aliens that do exist are super warlike and just kill other aliens that they encounter. So that's comforting. But Right, exactly. <laughs> so the motivation for the design was to deliver the maximum amount of information about our society and the human species in the minimal amount of message, Jiang says. Nearly all the messages that humans have broadcast into space so far start by establishing common ground with a basic lesson in science and mathematics two topics that are presumably familiar to both ourselves and extraterrestrials. A far messier question is how to encode these concepts into the communique. This mm -hmm. is why many attempts, including Beacon in the Galaxy, opt to design their letter as a bitmap, a way to use binary code to create a pixelated image. The on-off, present-absent nature of a binary seems like it would be recognized by any intelligent species. But the strategy is not without its shortcomings. When the pioneering search for extraterrestrial intelligence scientist Frank Drake designed a prototype of the Arecibo message, he sent the binary message by post to some colleagues, and only one figured out that the binary was meant to be a bitmap. If some of the mm. smartest humans struggle to understand this form of encoding a message, it seems unlikely that an extraterrestrial would fare any better. So there's a sample of the message in this article. There's a couple, actually, that you can check out. And it's really very interesting because it looks like we've basically created our own alien language. It's like this little mm. blue square placard. It's got a bunch of dots on it to represent the number of dots in a binary decimal system. It has uh. a bunch of other symbols that like, I haven't seen before that I don't believe are used with any language, but they're supposed to depict prime numbers. Huh. There's another sample here showing particle physics, including H equaling electron orbiting around a proton equating seconds to equal hertz, explaining the hydrogen spin flip from unidirectional to bidirectional, 
defining names such as time, frequency, wavelength, and all of these are translated into this sort of new cipher that's designed for aliens to perceive. Very, very interesting looking. So in 2017, Vakoch and his colleagues sent the first interstellar message transmitting scientific information since 2003 to a nearby star. It too was coded in binary, but it eschewed bitmaps for a message design that explored the concepts of time and radio waves by referring back to the radio wave carrying the message. Hmm. After an initial transmission of a prime number to mark the message as artificial, Jang's message uses the same alien alphabet to introduce our base 10 numeral system and basic mathematics. With this foundation in place, the message uses the spin-flip transition of a hydrogen atom to explain the idea of time and mark when the transmission was sent from Earth. The final pages are probably the most interesting to extraterrestrials, but also the least likely to be understood because they assume that the recipient represents objects in the same way that humans do. Hmm. These pages feature a sketch of a male and female human, a map of Earth's surface, a diagram of our solar system, the radio frequency that the extraterrestrials should use to respond to the message, and the coordinates of our solar system in the galaxy reference to the location of globular clusters, stable and tightly packed groups of thousands of stars that would likely be familiar to an extraterrestrial anywhere in the galaxy. It would be hilarious if aliens found this message and they spent a really long time decoding it and they try really hard and they show up speaking binary at us. (laughs) And they're like, this is what you told us you speak. And we're like, no, we made that up because we thought it'd be easier for you. And they're like, well, now we got to start over. Thanks. Yeah, come on. (laughs) (laughs) I personally think it'd be pretty funny if it turns out the reporting is true, which is that most of these aliens are extremely advanced and are pretty much telepathic and don't need any of this stuff. And we're basically pets sitting here trying to explain physics to them, and they're like, oh, that's Yeah, we're, we're like-, like the dog <laughs> hitting the, the pad game that makes uh-huh. noises, you know? And we're like... Yeah, yeah. Look at us. We're so smart. Binary. And they're like, yeah. okay, that's nice. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right, well, how do you feel about spicy food? Oh, I love it. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Because this next article is from skeptic.org.uk, and it's called Dread Not Chili Peppers, Dispelling Spicy Food Myths and Misconceptions. Ooh. Yeah. So, you know, let's get right into it. Myth number one, you're killing your taste buds, which is to say if you eat too much spicy food, you'll sort of deaden your tongue and make it impossible to enjoy more subtle flavors. And you would think that that would be more of a perception thing, you know, kind of difficult to measure. But in Mm -hmm. fact, this one is actually very solidly disproven by the science. Each taste bud on your tongue contains gustatory cells, which in turn contain different types of chemical taste receptors. The chemical that causes spiciness is called capsaicin, and the receptor for it is actually a plain old pain receptor known as TRPV1. So it's fully separate from our other taste receptors doesn't affect them at all, you're absolutely going to keep tasting other foods. You cannot destroy unrelated gustatory cells by too much spicy food. Mm-hmm. Now, it is technically possible to consume so much capsaicin at once that you physically damage the inside of your mouth. Oh. But even then, the average turnover of gustatory cells is just 8 to 12 days, at which point you've got a whole new tongue you could taste as well as you ever did. It's also true that the pain receptors themselves can become desensitized, but that's more of a neurological phenomenon, the same way you can get used to a bad smell or anything else where your brain just says, well, this is normal, no need to pay attention to it. So you can definitely get to where you don't taste spiciness as much, but that will have no effect on how well you can taste other flavors. Mm. Myth number two, spicy foods induce labor in pregnant women. 
<laughs> oh, I think I have heard that one actually. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, it's one of the. It's like nobody actually talks about it because it feels just weird enough that everyone's like, I'm not going to admit that I believe that. But a lot of people believe it. About five to six percent of pregnant women in the U.S. do report trying to induce labor with spicy foods. And it's never been fully disproven in a large study, but there's no evidence that it works either. As for where the myth came from, the only guess they've got is that capsaicin can cause muscle contractions in the GI tract, which could be mistaken for uterine contractions. Mm. So I guess the idea is they're imagining like you eat spicy food, your stomach kind of hurts a little bit. But you don't go into labor. So you eat more spicy food, your stomach kind of hurts, but you don't go in. And eventually, you do just go into labor. And there, you're like, oh, I caused that. And you're yeah. like, you were going to go into labor in a week anyway. Like, <laughs> you didn't make this happen. It just happened. And you made your stomach hurt the whole time leading up to it. Yeah. Myth number three, spicy foods are bad for irritable bowel syndrome. This one is a partial truth. Some people with IBS seem to have worse symptoms when they eat spicy foods, but others definitely do not. And this comes with, you know, the standard disclaimers. IBS is a complicated syndrome that varies widely from person to person, blah, blah, blah. But they do note that for some of the people who think that spicy foods make their IBS worse, there may be a number of alternative explanations. So first, capsaicin does speed up the transit time in the digestive tract. So for somebody who's already on the edge of things coming out too fast, mm. it can perhaps push them over that edge in a noticeable way, even though it isn't actually causing a greater flare of the disease itself. Second, people with IBS are commonly sensitive to high FODMAPs foods, which stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. And that is something that has been confirmed through large-scale studies, and two of the very highest FODMAPs foods are onions and garlic, which are commonly found in the same dishes as heavy spices. Hmm. So it's possible that the worst symptoms that they're experiencing are from those ingredients and not the capsaicin itself. Gotcha. Myth number four, <laughs> spicy food causes ulcers. This one, absolutely false. Ulcers are caused by the bacteria H. pylori. Done. That's it. Hmm. Uh, nice. <laughs> it's a short one. Myth number five, spicy foods are addictive. And this one is a little interesting because strictly speaking, no, you cannot become physically dependent on spicy foods. However, because capsaicin generates a pain response and one of our body's natural reactions to pain is to release endorphins, it is possible to crave that endorphin rush to a certain degree. Mm. The article also notes here at the end that certain things we think of as spicy are actually triggering different receptors than the standard pain receptors. Wasabi stimulates a receptor called TRPA1, and Szechuan peppers are believed to trigger mechanoreceptors on nerve fibers, which adds a tingling sensation to the mix that isn't actually a taste at all. And they don't wow. mention this in the article, but there is a Brazilian herb called jambu, that I have eaten before that makes your entire mouth feel like it's being electrocuted for like 30 minutes. Wow. Uh, I wouldn't say it was enjoyable necessarily. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound great. No, but it was fascinating to experience because it really was. When I tried it, it was like at this herb, whatever. They specifically were like, try this interesting foreign herb you've never tried. And they cut off the tiniest little leaf and they said, just chew it up. This is what's going to happen. 
if you don't like it too bad, the only way is to wait and the effect will go away. But like I've seen it in alcohols and stuff. Like they can use just a tiny bit of the extract to give mm-hmm. a little kick to other foods. I wasn't into it, but some people might be, I guess. Maybe I haven't had it prepared correctly. Maybe there's a chef out there who could use the jambu in just the exact right way. Yeah. You know, there's just some dishes that really get cinched by the electrifying feeling. Right, right. The one that lasts for way longer after you're done eating. Yeah. That's what you want. <laughs> Now, this very much feels like an herb that you would give to someone else. It's, I see. It's a, yeah. it's a prank herb. That's what you need it for. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from BBC.com, and it's titled Kevin Lee, the Briton who plays the bad guy in China's patriotic movies. Oh. We start with a dramatic line. A gunshot rings out. Covered in blood, Kevin Lee slumps to the ground. Wrapping up yet another successful turn in a Chinese blockbuster. (laughs) So back home, the British actor is virtually unknown. But in China, he's become a familiar face, always playing the villain who either gets killed or beaten up, defeated by the Chinese hero every single time. Known as Kai Wen in China, he has played a hitman in Jackie Chan's Kung Fu Yoga and a blue monster in fantasy film Super Me. (laughs) But he is best known in China for playing American Colonel Alan D. McLean, in last year's blockbuster, The Battle of Lake Changjin, cementing his status as China's favorite Western bad guy. Growing up in Huntington, Cambridgeshire, Mr. Lee loved watching Chinese martial arts movies. Jackie Chan, he said, was his biggest hero. More than two decades ago, shortly after getting an IT degree, he decided to study martial arts in Mudanjiang, a small town in northeastern China, for a whole year. It was Mm. his first trip to the country, and he could barely speak Mandarin. Upon his return to the UK, he found a job as a salesman, but he soon realized what he really wanted to do was be an actor. He studied drama at an acting school, then returned to China in 2010. But he didn't have much luck in China's movie industry until a chance encounter with action superstar Wu Jing, who has since become synonymous with nationalistic movies in China. Mm. Mr. Li said he was renewing his work visa at the Public Security Bureau in Beijing when he ran into Mr. Wu at the lifts. He was starstruck. Just the night before, Mr. Lee had watched one of Mr. Wu's films. Mr. Lee said, so I walked over to him and I said, hey, you're Wu Jing, right? I said that in Chinese. Mr. Mm -hmm. Wu was surprised, but then told him that he needed a big man to star in an upcoming action movie. Two weeks later, he went for an audition. He stumbled over his lines in Chinese, but Mr. Wu gave him the role. It was his big break. That movie turned out to be the first film in iconic action franchise Wolf Warrior. (laughs) So, in 2014, Chinese leader Xi Jinping had urged artists to make patriotism the main theme of literary and artistic creation. In the following years, Wolf Warrior and its even bigger sequel, Wolf Warrior 2, came out. Combining exciting fight scenes with plots promoting Chinese soldiers' heroism in foreign lands, the films ushered in a new era of patriotic Chinese movies. These slickly produced, action-packed films are known as main melody movies, a term for something that follows official government ideology. Mm. The films often portray China as a world power which does whatever it takes to save its citizens or pay tribute to revolutionary heroes who resist Western imperialists. Many of these villain roles have gone to Mr. Lee, helping him carve out a unique niche. Mr. Lee said he is thrilled by his newfound success, but is also aware that he has to tread carefully with his fan base. In the Battle of Changjin, for instance, he played an American colonel whose troops battled Chinese forces during the Korean War. 
He says, I also have to respect what that movie means to Chinese people, because I'm a foreigner in that film who is essentially killing Chinese soldiers. Hmm. On social media, the British actor has been criticized for participating in Chinese propaganda films. But Mr. Lee says, honestly, I don't care what people think because it's my business. I'm just an actor. I don't work for the Chinese government. I just reply with a smiley emoji. Mm -hmm. Foreigners here don't get a chance to play the main role because this is the Chinese market. He says right. it's the same in the West. If you look at Hollywood movies, how many Chinese or Asian actors do you see playing the lead man? The Chinese or Russians will always play the bad guy. But one thing that does frustrate Mr. Lee is the censorship. In movies made in the West, he says, we can talk about our presidents, our prime minister, we can talk about drugs, we can talk about gangs, but obviously in China, it's a little bit more limited to what you can write about. Even when the movie has finished filming, it doesn't mean it would get released. It has to go through scrutiny by censors. Wow. While Mr. Lee feels proud of his achievements in China, he does want to try out different roles, maybe even in Hollywood or London. He says, it would be nice to play a good guy, but I have to accept that if I'm going to be an actor here, that I'm going to play the bad guy. But if I always played the same role, my acting videos would look the same. Directors won't see me as a multi-talented actor. My biggest dream is to walk on the street and have them stop me and say, Kevin, you're a great actor. <laughs> Which, you know. I mean, I guess that's every actor's yeah. dream. And he's got a fair point. You know, we have all of a huge history of movies where you've got like the same three Asian characters playing every Asian character. Yeah. Did you did you watch Squid Game? Yes, I did. The scene with all of the white people in it oh, yeah. was so awful. Yeah. And horrible. we yeah, and it was the only like really poorly acted part of it, we thought. And we sat there and we're sort of thinking about like, okay, but if you're making this film in South Korea and you need ten very obviously American actors, it may be hard to find, yeah. you know, fifty something white men. It's not hard here. Yeah. But maybe the talent pool is so low. And it can also be know? just depending on, you know, like who you have available at the production. Mm -hmm. Like maybe they couldn't really evaluate the English as well as maybe somebody right. else might have been able to or something like that. You know, like there's so much right. stuff that goes into production, especially like a, a multicultural international one. It's crazy. Which again is a reminder to us that we need those people on our side as well when yes. we're making a movie. Have those multicultural cultural people there so they can say, hey, you know what? What you're doing right now is super offensive. Maybe don't do it that way. Yeah. Just, yeah. you know, a little hint. <laughs> next link. Next, next link. link. Well, I hope you haven't eaten lunch yet because this next title is a doozy. Okay. It's called Magnetic Turd. <laughs> Scientists invent moving slime that could be used in human digestive systems. Oh my God, that was a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And as the subtitle helpfully notes, researcher who co-created substance says it is not an April Fool's joke. <laughs> so just in case you were wondering, <laughs> that researcher is Professor Li Zhang of the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And he says the slime contains magnetic particles so that it can be manipulated to travel, rotate or form O and C shapes when external magnets are applied to it. It's also a good electrical conductor and can be used to connect circuits. Hmm. And it's worth noting that this is all still in the realm of fundamental research, right? Just trying to understand the material properties of this substance that they've created. They've got ideas, but their position is sort of, we're making this cool thing, so you tell us how it could help your industry. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, the applications of a moving magnetic slime are honestly kind of endless. It can squeeze through incredibly tiny spaces and then glob back up together on the other side. It can be cut into sections for multiple tasks and then heal itself. It can wrap around items and drag them somewhere else. 
And this last trait is what makes Zhang think that it might be good, as just one example, for retrieving foreign objects from the digestive tract without having to perform a full-on surgery. You know, your toddler swallows a battery, right? That's not something that you can just politely let pass through. But with this slime, instead of cutting them open and pulling it out of their intestines, you could theoretically swallow a chunk of it or even chew it up if you want because it can collect itself back together in Mm -hmm. your stomach. And then it could wiggle its way down the intestines, envelop the battery, and then quickly move onward to the end. So the slime is made of a mixture of polyvinyl alcohol, borax, and particles of neodymium magnet. And the overall effect is a viscoelasticity that is similar to that childhood science project we all did at some point with cornstarch and water. Do you remember that? Mm, I don't know. I I had a different childhood, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) It's basically just a fun little arts and craft. You mix cornstarch and water and it's liquid. It's kind of just this goo. But if you slap it really hard, it's solid. Mm. Like the physical pressure makes it a solid. It's right there on that border. Which is what helps the slime, you know, go through a really skinny portion of, say, your digestive tract, but then glob back up and be firm enough to grab onto something and yank it somewhere. I'm just like trying to imagine what it would feel like to have this sort of operation done on myself. Mm -hmm. And I'm imagining a doctor pointing a big magnet at my stomach. (laughs) Right. And then just moving around me, you know? Right. Like one of those toys where you have to pick up the thing with the magnet and move it down the maze until you get to the bottom. Yeah, yeah. Except, you know, inside you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at the moment, the magnetic particles in the slime are actually toxic. So no one's going to be swallowing this stuff anytime soon. Okay. But the researchers did recently create a version where the slime was coated in a layer of silica to form a hypothetically protective layer. They don't know, but they're like, this might help. And they say there are plenty of additional modifications on the table as they continue to refine the product for different uses. Zhang noted, for example, that pigments or dye could be used to make the slime more visually appealing, since right now it really (laughs) does look exactly like the title of the article suggests. It's honestly incredibly gross looking. (laughs) There is video of the slime in action if you want to see it. And, you know, to be fair, It does look a lot cooler in motion than it sounds. The movements are like super delicate and precise. It crawls across the desk. It goes through mazes. It even stretches out really flat and then goes underneath a wire and curls itself up like a little croissant and pulls the wire over. And they don't talk at all about how the magnetic controllers are able to function in three dimensions like that. But clearly they can. And Zhang's hope is that eventually the slime will be paired with an AI controlling the magnets on the outside so that it can function fully autonomously. So if you thought it was weird to imagine a doctor pulling this thing through you, just imagine a robot doing it with no doctor at all. Yeah, that <laughs> that's worse. Yeah, I have a lot of questions <laughs> about this just in general, because now I'm imagining because to do it in 3D, right, you need mm-hmm. two robots because you need right, one right. On you need like that side. triangulation exactly. of the magnetic field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And since the plan is for the slime to someday have some amount of independent programming, Zhang would really prefer that we all call it a magnetic slime robot instead. Hmm. Uh, But the Guardian apparently just ignored that request. They had to call it like they saw it. (laughs) I mean, it's it's journalistic integrity because it's not a robot yet. You can't say this is a magnetic slime robot when really all it is is something that you've gone and dragged across the table. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's not it's not a robot until it has the food coloring and looks nice. Right. 
And then then it's cute and it can't possibly harm us. Why would you think that it could? It's beautiful. Yeah. (laughs) I'm imagining it tearing up my intestinal lining, but yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what they keep talking. They're like, oh, it could be used for this. Oh, it'll totally kill you. But maybe someday (laughs) it might be used for this. And, you know, there's all sorts of other things you have to consider as well. It's like, okay, so you've put this chunk of this stuff in your toddler and it's going down. You're still having to, like, x-ray or guess where the thing you're trying to grab is. Mm-hmm. And there, I don't know. It feels like there's just more to it when you can't see what's going on, yeah. which is a big part of what this is supposed to be used for. They're like, oh, you can, like, fit it into a broken circuit. And it could wiggle its way all over there and then just sort of connect the circuit for you without having to take apart everything. But it's like laparoscopic surgery. Like, the camera is critical mm-hmm. to be able to see what you're doing. So, I don't know. It's it's going to be used for porn and war because that's what everything is for. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, if you invent something and you just pose an open question like, hey, who wants this? Well, there's two people. That's for sure. Right. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include... Mussolini's Motherhood Factories, What People Get Wrong About African-American English, and The Return of France's Lost Lemon. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. 